Welcome to From What If to What Next. Imagine this podcast as being like the garage in the film Grease, where they sing Go Greased Lightning as they transform a normal car into glistening chrome and shining bodywork. Only we do the same to your imagination. By the end of our conversation, your sense of what's possible in the world, how the future could be, will be similarly gleaming, buffed, shining and beautiful. I'm Rob Hopkins, and you're very welcome. I should just mention that if you're listening to this podcast and like what you hear, then do consider signing up at patreon.com slash from what if to what next and enabling me to keep on making more for less than the price of a sandwich for four podcasts a month, any of which may very well change your life. Think about it. Today, we're talking about money. Specifically, we're talking about how we might nurture the imaginations of those people who have most of it so that they might consider spreading it around more at the time when doing so is absolutely critical. In my work with the transition movement, I'm often asked entirely reasonably what the movement is doing to engage with the poorest communities. Yet almost never have I been asked what we're doing to engage with the wealthiest ones, with the 1%, the 0.1% or the 0.01%. And yet that's a hugely important question. And perhaps all our other efforts are doomed without them. It was recently announced that Chuck Feeney, the American airport duty-free shopping entrepreneur who was worth $8 billion, had, by the age of 59, succeeded in his goal of giving away all of his money to initiatives working to make the world a better place. Every cent. He suggested that giving away a huge fortune was far more fun than holding on to it. He once wrote, To those wondering about giving while living, try it, you'll like it. He was inspired by the words of Andrew Carnegie, who once wrote that the millionaire will be but a trustee for the poor. It was also announced recently that Mackenzie Scott, the former wife of Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, who became the world's 18th richest billionaire through her divorce settlement of $60 billion, has already given away $4 billion of it and plans to give away much of the rest. Yet such generosity is rare. The wealthy's usual approach is to hide their money away through a series of elaborate channels, vehicles and scams. It's estimated that 26% of the world's wealth is now stashed away in tax havens around 10% of global GDP. And all of this at a time when there has never been more that needed doing, a climate and ecological emergency, which the UN estimate could be brought under control for just $300 billion. A rapidly widening gap between the haves and have-nots. There was one day during the pandemic when Jeff Bezos's personal wealth increased by $13 billion. A criminal justice system that profits from those failed by underfunded communities, and so much more. And so, Our what-if question for today is, what if dynasties of private wealth were to completely reimagine their relationship to money in such urgent times? Let's meet our guests for this exploration. Dr. Van der Viporska is Executive Director at the Equality Trust, the national charity that campaigns to reduce social and economic inequality. She's a visiting research fellow at the University of York, a trustee of the Association of Chief Executives of Voluntary Organisations, Red Thread Youth and Equally Ours, as well as a governor of a primary school. 
She has over a decade of experience working in the trade union movement, leading on equalities, social mobility and education policy, and is an experienced campaigner. She was a Starin Senior Scholar at Hartford College, Oxford, where she was awarded a doctorate in European history and subsequently published her first book, Witchcraft in Early Modern Poland, 1500 to 1800, which was shortlisted for the Catherine Briggs Folklore Award. And Chuck Collins is the director of the Programme on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he co-edits inequality.org. He's the author of the seminal book Born on Third Base, a one-percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home and committing to the common good, and co-author of Wealth and Our Commonwealth, A Case for Taxing Inherited Fortunes. His new book Wealth Hoarders, How Billionaires Pay Millions to Hide Trillions, is about the wealth defence industry and will be published in the UK in February 2021 and in March 2021 in the US by Polity Press. He's an expert on US inequality and the racial wealth divide and is co-founder of Wealth for the Common Good, a network of business leaders, high-income households and partners working together to promote shared prosperity and fair taxation. This network merged in 2015 with the Patriotic Millionaires. In 1995, he co-founded United for a Fair Economy to raise the profile of the inequality issue and support popular education and organising efforts to address inequality. And he was executive director of UFE from 1995 to 2001 and programme director until 2005. Welcome both to From What If to What Next. Thanks. It's great to be here. So I'd like to start with an activity that we always do on these podcasts. I'd like to invite you both, if I might, to close your eyes and make yourselves comfortable. And if you're listening, do feel free to do this as well. I'd like you to imagine that thanks to this incredible time machine here that I built during lockdown from some plans I found online, we're travelling forward through time, through the nine years between now and 2030, which turned out to be a time of incredible change, unimaginable in 2021. Change built and institutions shifted, dissolved, were reimagined, money was made available for the change that was needed, communities were resourced, incredible things happened. It felt in hindsight like living through a revolution of the imagination, a remarkable time to be alive. And the 2030 that you emerge into, while it's no utopia, is a world transformed. It's a world in which the many, many dynasties of private wealth have completely reimagined their relationship to money. The whole idea of private philanthropy has been completely reimagined. Many foundations spent down their endowment in order to make change happen. I'd like to invite you both to take us on a walk through that world. What do you see? What do you taste, feel and hear? Can you describe a day in the life in that world? Bring to life the world as you imagine it, a world where your work in 2021 has borne fruit. Well, it's it's a wonderful invitation. And I'm just imagining walking into my town, my neighborhood center. And in some ways, maybe it's because I'm living in a pandemic, but I'm envisioning people, people are out, you know, together. In, in some ways, it's like the pandemic and that people are staying put. They're in their community, they're in their neighborhood, they're not jetting around, they're, they're walking, they're tending to gardens, tending to children, tending to friends. You know, it's not uh, utopia, but that, that sort of sense of fear and insecurity and, and scarcity is, is somewhat lifted in people's voices. There's, people are not rushed, uh, they're being present with each other. In some ways, there's not this kind of austerity that a lot of our communities have faced over the decades. There's 
there's sort of all the all the wealth that's been sequestered is now kind of returning to the commons in different forms and their public investments in in landscaping and flowers and infrastructure and services and parks and and so it just is a a, a more a lush day and environment there's also not a lot of big chain stores like there's sort of a a breaking up of the brand big controlling brands and more sort of smaller enterprises vibrant businesses in the in the local neighborhood compared to these large monopolies that are slowly dissipating mm. wonderful thank you vanda i th- i think i'm i'm struck by what i wouldn't see rather than what i would see in a sense so i wouldn't see people begging on the streets or people having to bed down in in building doorways in fact i'd like to see far fewer doors in buildings and gates and gated communities and i'd like to see a far more open city that's really at ease with itself and where everybody is wearing decent clothes where everybody looks relaxed where everybody is taking that time and and where there's kindness where people are being sociable where they're stopping for those small conversations and where people are out with their children or out with their parents and i think there's there's an atmosphere of of pleasure and an atmosphere of taking time because i think time is one of the most precious things nobody's rushing anywhere and where there is a real sort of feeling that of, of community where you can you can feel it you can taste it and you can feel safe knowing that people have got your back or that there's a great health service or that there's fantastic education and that we've all had our fair share and so we don't feel envious of other people we don't look at huge houses and think oh I'd like to live there because in essence all of that is apportioned far more fairly and there isn't a culture or a feeling of envy wonderful thank you thank you both so much so I'd like to start this conversation by asking if I, if you might give us a sense of the current state of play in terms of this conversation. Where are we at? Are there any dynasties of private wealth completely reimagining their relationship to money in such urgent times? Can you tell us any stories? Where, where are we now, uh, Vanda? Well, I mean, this is, this is far more Chuck's area than mine. What I can say is that we're definitely seeing trusts and foundations that were based on those dynasties of private wealth, rethinking how they're distributing their philanthropy. Um, And obviously after the events of the summer, where the world suddenly discovered racism and inequality, you know, as if all of these things hadn't been happening for years and decades and centuries before, it did push an understanding of structural inequalities and the effects that they were having on people and the fact that we had the pandemic really sharpened people's focus. So there's been a huge understanding of structural inequalities. And that, I think, has impacted on philanthropy. And it's shifted some trusts and foundations from thinking purely in terms of putting the bandages on and that idea of, you know, the deserving poor that they're supporting and that, that very imbalanced power dynamic to far more of an attitude of working with communities and to try and tackle some of these issues upstream, i.e. in policy and in practical work as well. So I welcome that from the perspective of those trusts and foundations. Yeah, similar to what uh, Vanda sees, I I see uh, a drift toward, in the moment, greater concentrations of dynastic wealth. If the next 20 years 
are anything like the last 40 years, we're going to see a drift more toward these hereditary dynasties of wealth and power. And I think I see more people questioning that. Uh, in the same way, we're coming to understand the multi-generational nature of inequality, of poverty and deprivation and trauma. We're also sort of getting a crash course in the multi-generational nature of advantage and wealth creating wealth. And there are people stepping out from that. You, you mentioned in the introduction, Chuck Feeney, who lives in a very modest apartment now in San Francisco. He's, he clearly understands he has enough. He's, he has a decent life. He, he's focused on what's important. And I see a lot of people following in his footsteps, interested and intrigued. Uh, in, instead of thinking, oh, I'm going to create a foundation or a trust for my unborn great-grandchildren, and I'm going to pass on you know, huge piles of wealth and, and, and power, I'm going to distribute that now. And more and more people are demanding that we don't, as a society, encourage and subsidize the creation of these dynastic piles of wealth. So I, I see things starting to crack, if you will, and people recognize the, the, the dangers and uh, downside of these dynasties of wealth. A couple of years ago, I watched Leonardo DiCaprio's film Before the Flood. And in it, as one of the US's wealthiest people, he traveled to India to ask an activist what India is doing about the climate emergency, to which she quite rightly replied, well, what are you doing? And it would have been so much more fascinating and impactful to have heard and seen DiCaprio as part of the 0.1% with the world's 11th biggest super yacht, exploring with other people like him what letting go of their wealth and status to, to the degree that the climate emergency demands would feel like. How would they adapt? And I wonder if you have any thoughts on what that discussion with such people might look like. How do we start that conversation? How do we facilitate it? Do you have any experience you can share of, of having those conversations? Chuck? Yeah, I mean, I think um, partly coming out of the, the book I did, Born on Third Base, I've had a couple of years of, of discussions with some very high net worth individuals. I think part of what the conversation comes down to is the level of inequality uh, is a disconnecting impact on people's lives, that privilege is a disconnection drug, that people are, if they are distanced from the suffering of others, it makes it harder to create empathy. And during a pandemic, we're having even kind of more sort of social distancing. And I think the, the antidote to that is connection and, and the old idea of coming home. And I think a lot more people are approaching wealthy individuals and saying, look, what, what are you hoarding this wealth for? What, what possible good can come from this? Uh, it's not good for your children or, or grandchildren to, to grow up in an economic apartheid society. Bring your wealth home. Come home. Reroute yourself in a place. Loosen your grip on all of this wealth. Stop hiring you know, the wealth defense industry to hide your money and create trusts but bring it back to the society, bring it back to the commons, pay your taxes, share the wealth. And I think that it's a compelling invitation. Uh, it's essentially saying, come rejoin humanity. You know, you, there's no planet B. You can't, you can't blast off and, and go somewhere else. You, you're, you're stuck with the rest of the world and humanity. And so you might as well roll up your sleeves with, the, with everyone else and fix the future. Vanda? You know, I, I can't say I've been 
privy to having conversations with um, high net worth individuals. <laughs> they tend to steer, steer very clear of us uh, for some <laughs> obvious reasons, I'm afraid, um, apart from a, a valiant few who, you know, really do believe that they should be giving their money away. Um, I mean, I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because in terms of, yes, you know, we do recognise that these individuals should be giving money away, but there's also, uh, as Chuck is also very expert in in the discussion about philanthropy itself and where does that go and the problems with directed philanthropy in that the lack of diversity in terms of the billionaires and the philanthropists and the fact that you know they can choose who they give their money to they can choose their causes as you know as all of us who give to charity do choose causes that are are very close to our hearts or or things that we've experienced and so you know there's an immense amount of power in that dynamic as well choosing what causes are deemed worthy and which aren't. And that sets up a whole range of problems as well. The focus of this podcast series is about imagination. And we have a pretty clear understanding of what poverty does to the imagination, flooding us with cortisol, reducing our ability to think about the future. But I wonder, in your experience, what does extreme wealth do to the imagination? John Dewey described imagination as the ability to see things as if they could be otherwise. Do you have any thoughts on how the far end of the inequality spectrum impacts our ability to see things as if they could be otherwise? Well, I I think in terms of imagination and wealth, um, one of the things that came out of a study that Trust for London funded um, with LSE, with Case at LSE, was that wealth was really seen as a proxy for security. And so I think, you know, what what we're imagining when we imagine wealth is security. We're imagining that we have a home that nobody can take away from us and that nobody can evict us from. We're imagining that we can buy a better education for our children. And we're imagining that we can buy security, whether that's actual physical security in a gated community or that peace of mind that comes with having money and knowing that you've got security in all of these areas. And that's as most of us face an ever more precarious job market um, and labour situation. So I think when we think about wealth, it's not necessarily that we're imagining that we have, you know, a couple of yachts and six or seven holidays a year or six, well, six or seven houses, let's face it, not just holidays. I think that it's really intrinsically tied up with our feelings of insecurity. And of course, that has an impact on our mental health. And we know that status and wealth and all of those inequalities have a huge impact on our mental health. Mm, Thank you. Chuck? Yeah, I I think building on what Vanda said, I think for wealthy people, the idea that you can build a a wall of wealth around you that's somehow going to protect you from the human condition, which is, you know, we we are vulnerable. We experience suffering. We have accidents and loss. um, And that wealth somehow is going to be a buffer when in fact it isn't. You know, we, we live in an insecure society. There are things that we can do together to ensure that there's a, a sort of social safety net and decency and a web of supports so that we hold one another when there are uh, unfortunate events or whatever. But the whole idea that I'm going to just endlessly build this wall of money around my life and then around my children and then the next generation is illusory. So I think part of what's missing in imagination is seeing the web of support and security that that could exist and that part of wealthy people coming home is saying yeah I'm I'm part of society and it's in my deepest interest to have a much more secure society where everyone 
has some of these basic minimal social benefits and opportunity for a decent life. One interesting contradiction is among the wealthy people I know, they, they actually do get to travel and see other societies are organized differently. And sometimes that can help jog the imagination. So I meet, meet wealthy people who've actually traveled to Scandinavia and come back to the United States and go, wow, we could learn a few things from how people are organizing there. Uh, and that opens up the possibility for imagination or reimagining. So Chuck Feeney, who we mentioned at the outset, clearly enjoyed the experience of giving away a fortune. As another Chuck uh, who has done the same thing, how would you, Chuck, recommend it to people in a similar position? If anyone is listening to this podcast who is in a position to do the same thing, how would you sell them the idea? And what does it feel like to do this? Can you share your own story and how it actually felt to to do that? Well, you know, I mean, I, I did uh, win the lottery at birth but I think I, I saw the limits of, you know, kind of privatized wealth and security. Yeah, my experience was it's somewhat liberating to basically say, well, you know, I'm not going to build a wall of money around my own life and, and that sort of illusory sense of security. I'm going to invest in the commonwealth. I'm going to invest in shared security and non-material security and things that, you know, will not just make my life better, but make everyone's life better, that, that I am interconnected. And I think that's the pleasurable part, if you will, is recognizing our shared vulnerability and interconnection. We're only as secure as our neighbors are secure. And it's not really sort of a, an economic self-interest calculation. It's also sort of a spiritual sense of well-being as well. I think we underestimate the toll that living in a grotesquely unequal society takes on people, obviously in terms of people who are both deprived, but the whole psychic well-being of a community and society, I think, are fundamentally undermined by the kind of extreme inequalities we're living through. How did it change you, do you think? How did you feel different after that process to how you had done at the beginning? Well, one thing is I think I felt less ambivalent about looking directly at these inequalities. I think that when you're kind of a beneficiary, if you will, of an unequal society, you create stories or mythologies or filters to look at the world through the, you know, justify your situation. And I don't know, those were, those were somewhat peeled away. And then I would say, I just felt like I could just be myself. You know, I wasn't trying to hide or pretend to be somebody other than what I was. Uh, and I think that the, a lot of wealthy people do hide behind their wealth if you, in some ways. So I think, again, I, I, I experienced it as somewhat liberating. I think that may not be everyone's experience, but I would certainly, as I talk to younger people or people who are wrestling with what to do with surplus wealth, I, I invite them to consider giving away substantial assets and, and rejoining humanity, if you will, in that way. Mm. Thank you. And Vanda, the, we, we talked about how inequality can have damaging effects on the imagination of people who are at the wealthiest end of that ever-expanding uh, spectrum. But are there other impacts as well? Um, are they having an amazing time? Or does widening inequality take a toll on them too? Is there a case that we can make to them that the current gap is not really in their interests either? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, as, as those of your listeners who've read The Spirit Level will know that 
in countries with huge levels of inequality as we you know we have in the uk and the us we are the poster children for inequality we also have higher levels of poor mental health poor physical health we have higher levels of obesity we have higher levels of crime violence incarceration we have lower levels of trust which is absolutely fundamental especially during times of a pandemic and we have lower levels of educational attainment and social mobility now people tend to focus on the sort of bottom income level end in terms of those social determinants and certainly what we've seen with covid is that it has struck hardest in those most deprived communities but make no mistake, this is also a problem for people at the top end because inequality affects all of us. Um, you may be richer, but you're still living in a, in a country where there are higher levels of poor mental health. And that's something that you know, could also affect you and your family. And you may be living in a gated community, but worried that your children are gonna be kidnapped or you know, there are all sorts of other things that people might worry about. And again, the social, aspects of that feeling isolated. I think all of us are much more aware of the effects of feeling isolated um, at the moment. And these are all very real issues. You know, it doesn't have to be this way. Inequality is not inevitable. It is a policy choice. And we can do much better than that. As you mentioned, Scandinavia, although inequality is going up slowly in some of those countries, in some of the Nordic countries, they're still starting off from a far better place than the UK or the US. I remember hearing Douglas Rushkoff uh, talking recently about how 10 years ago at Silicon Valley events, the super rich folks he met in green rooms backstage wanted to ask him where, given the unfolding emergencies in the world, would be the best place to buy land. And now he said they, they're asking him how, when things get really tough, they might keep their private security detail from turning on them. I wonder, through the work that you do, what are the conversations that are happening and the ways that the great unraveling is being viewed uh, by the very wealthy? Well, I think you're right that some some people kind of go to a very fearful kind of bunker perspective. You, you hear about people buying uh, landing strips in New Zealand and mountain redoubts and, and uh, missile silos that are provisioned. And you know, again, I think the people recognize that that's illusory. You know, particularly when it comes to ecological and and climate disruption, there's no island you can go hide on, if you will. So I think there is a, a reckoning and a recognition that we need to invest in collective solutions. And you know, I think I think we're talking about sort of intra wealthy conversation here, but I also think the rest of society, every everyone who's not wealthy, have a really even more important role in in sort of changing the rules of the economy to not enable so much wealth to be extracted from the commons uh, to bring a kind of skepticism to billionaire philanthropy and 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 really rethink the rules of how philanthropy should be governed so that it's not just a extension of private power uh, as Vanda said there is a conversation within and among people with privilege and advantage, but it's really the rest of society is going to push that discussion forward by making demands, you know, by urging and inviting these wealthy people to re-engage and come home and ultimately legislate tax policies like a wealth tax and others, things that help return this wealth to the commons. That is the dialogue I see happening. And it's, it's getting more robust given the acute nature of the crisis we're in. 
So the question we've been exploring today has been what if dynasties of private wealth were to completely reimagine their relationship to money in such urgent times? So I'd like to close our conversation with your thoughts on how we might start most skillfully to bring about the conversations with people in that position that might feel safe enough to explore the kind of things we've been discussing here. So we, we need a stick, the stick of the closure of tax havens, robust taxation and so on. And we also need the carrot. I wonder if you could maybe talk about what the stick might look like and what the carrot might look like. Well, I think the stick at a broader level is obviously the impending doom that the planet is facing. But as well as that, social unrest. I mean, just before the pandemic, we saw social unrest because of inequality, uh, protests against inequality in a number of countries in Chile and Lebanon and, you know, the Gilets Jaunes in France. So I think the corporates are realizing that, you know, whether they dress it up as ESG or they actually take it seriously, that action has to be taken, that social events can impact on business and therefore on capitalism. So I think, you know, there are some warning signs there. But I think the carrot is really that, you know, it comes back to humanity. It comes back to what sort of a world do you want your children to live in? Do you want them to be terrified behind gates or do you want them to live a life that's actually really worth living? Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. Yeah, I mean, I think it, in, in, in some ways it comes back to the, the famous Gandhi quote that there's enough for everyone's need, but, but not for everyone's greed. And I think that, you know, the sticks are things like a robust wealth and inheritance tax on the wealth of the, say, the top one-tenth of 1%, 30000000 million and up. Transparency, so that hidden wealth is not possible, that the whole idea that you can sequester billions, trillions of dollars in shell companies and trusts and that there be a much more transparent system around money and country by country reporting. And then I think a social decency floor that enables people to have adequate income and healthcare and and the basics. And I think the carrot is kind of what we were envisioning at the beginning, just a, a much more flourishing of humanity and ability to spend time with our loved ones and tending to uh, gardens and orchards and nature and, and, and the young and the old, you know, so just the benefits of living in a much more equitable society, which would be broadly shared. Wonderful. Thank you both. Thank you both so much for joining me here today and, and, and for being part of this conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. So my thanks also to Ben Adicott for theme music and sound production, to you for listening, and see you next time. Let us know what you think in the comments section.